Welcome to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast, your weekly guide to what's happening within the climate around the world. My name is Neil Vinikirk, the Executive Director and a founding member of Two Degrees C. Along with co-founders Dr. Carson Shine and Jenny Disson, we cover issues relating to the climate crisis. So join us as we explore in the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast. Today, joining me again, Dr. Carsten Schein and Dr. Christy Foster, the Executive Director of the Tillamook Estuaries Partnership. Got that right. This time, at least. Welcome, everyone. Carsten, before we go too deep uh, into uh, Christy's work, I wanted to ask you today if you could perhaps frame the uh, estuarine environment as f- far as the climate conversation goes how do, how does this fit in how does how do estuaries fit in well estuaries are super important to the whole climate uh, equation um, they are uh, home to some ecosystems that sequester a lot of carbon um, and uh, they act a bit as a filter uh, for for a lot of uh, what's what's running through the, uh, the hydrologic cycle so yeah, they've got uh, they've got a lot of importance to uh, to understanding and uh, and addressing climate. So Christy, maybe you can introduce yourself and uh, what you're doing out in the Tillamook um, area. Sure. So I've I've been here for about five years in Tillamook County, and I come with a, a pretty broad background. I've worked in the petrochemical industry because I started off as a chemical engineer. And then I went back to school and became a marine biologist and oceanographer. So I kind of completely switched um, uh, my career path. And I, my background is in coral reef ecology. And that's how um, I got to do a lot of research in ecosystems and, and begin working with citizen science. And I've moved over to Tillamook County, Oregon in 2016, and I have been part of the Tillamook Estuary Partnership since then. So I started off as the education and um, community engagement coordinator and became the executive director after a couple of years when an opening became available. So Tillamook Estuaries Partnership is actually one of 28 locations in the National Estuary Program. This is a, an EPA program from the Environmental Protection Agency, and it is under the mandate of the Clean Water Act. So it kind of, um, even though we have funding from the EPA, we are not a governmental agency. We are a nonprofit organization, and we look at trying to um, provide healthy habitats, healthy watersheds for our thriving community, which is very small. We are a rural community with more cows than people. I love that. So tell us now, what, what is the makeup of this estuarine environment? Why is it, why, what's going on there that makes this so important? Well, an estuary is where the river meets the sea. So we actually look at the bigger picture. We're not looking at just the estuary. We're looking at the entire watershed. So that goes all of the land area where the water flows over it into the rivers and then down to the, to the sea. 
So it is probably an estuary uh, is one of the most productive ecosystems that exists. And what I mean by that is that it has some of the um, most, or some of the thickest and um, most dense and variety of plant life. So by productivity, we mean plant productivity, lots and lots of carbon intake and lots and lots of oxygen output. Uh, it is incredibly important because it is the breeding and rearing grounds of fish. Uh, we have, uh, where I live, we are in a mountainous range, range, so we also have a lot of forest land. So we have incredible um, elk and deer and, and all sorts of other um, uh, wildlife. Migratory birds come through here and use the estuaries as their stopover points between their migration between north and south during every year. Uh, and our fish life is, and shellfish life is amazing. And then also in Tillamook, what we're known for is also our cows. So uh, we have incredible dairy um, industry here as well. And uh, they thrive here. We have some of the best ice cream and cheese that you can find. So am I right in saying that um, this would be uh, not only ecologically important species, but also economically important species, uh, especially ocean species? Is that correct? Incredibly. Um, the reason why Tillamook Bay was nominated and accepted as one of the bays of national significance in the United States is because of our salmon population. Uh, we are one of the largest areas for, for salmon breeding and, and fishing um, in our bay. And so that is incredibly important from an economic viewpoint. Uh, one of our other bays, um, as well as Tillamook Bay, but Neatarts Bay is known for its oysters. And so we provide that um, at, and other shellfish, uh, oysters, clams, cockles, gapers, though that the shellfish industry is incredibly important to us. Um, because of the high, high level of oysters in Neatarts Bay, we're also known for our salt because it's some of the cleanest water that you can have in any bays. And uh, one of our industries is to extract the salt from there because it's of the purest, um, best quality. Wow. Uh, we have dairy industry, we have lumber industry, and because um, just of our location between the mountains and the ocean, we also have tourist industry. So our estuaries are incredibly important to us economically. So how does the, that estuarine environment compare to other environments around the world? Because, you know, I mean, here in Florida, where I am, we, we have, uh, you know, mangroves and seagrass beds, but um, what, do we, what do we see out where you are? So where we are, we have, um, we have a lot of Pacific Northwest type trees. So we're not gonna have the mangroves here. Uh, we're gonna have all kinds of Sitka sedge, um, Sitka spruce, um, eelgrass beds. Uh, we have kelp forests um, out on the ocean. And so we have grass plant or grasslands. Uh, we actually have violet fields. Uh, so uh, quite a bit different. And even as you go around to the different national estuary programs in the United States, each one has their own um, benefits and concerns. You know, certainly what we have going on here, because we're, we're so small as far as a, as a population, is different from the challenges that go on just a little bit north of us uh, in Portland for the lower Columbia. Their river system is, has different challenges because of all of the different industries. Puget Sound is different. The folks in Florida experience different things along Indian River Lagoon and, and temperature related uh, incidents. Um, so it, 
each location um, is has its own needs and um, uh, different projects that people work on to try to help improve those systems. But we're looking at trying to do that across the nation and certainly across the world because this is where our fish come from, the fish that we eat. Uh, it's where we recreate. And so um, there's a lot of not only economic, but also intrinsic value to our estuaries and, and the surrounding areas. Gotcha. And you, Carson, you mentioned this uh, in the beginning, but um, you know, there, there's a, um, uh, an effect of carbon sequestration that's occurring. Um, maybe you can elaborate a bit on that. And uh, so, you know, the listeners can understand what that actually means. So, yeah, sure. In any, uh, in, in, in the earth system, there's, there's a constant cycle of carbon. Uh, you know, when we burn wood or fossil fuels and such, carbon makes its way into the atmosphere. Um, it's then used by plants, for example, um, and some animals um, to uh, convert that carbon, pull that carbon out and store it as, as dry matter as it grows. Um, so uh, things like uh, seagrasses, the eelgrass that uh, Christy mentioned, uh, kelp forests and such, uh, they're incredibly good at pulling this carbon out of the atmosphere, transforming it into, into plant material and then basically fixing it in place so it's, it's out of the system for a while and eventually it will wind up in the soils as those plants decompose and you know hopefully um, the soil becomes carbon rich instead of you know and, and not and it's not burned and put back into the atmosphere um, the, the oceans as well good source a good good play good sink for carbon di uh, dioxide is being absorbed into the water um, and uh, sequestered stored away so is it fair to say that it's not only important not to be emitting the carbon dioxide but it's also important to be absorbing it is that correct Absolutely. Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility. Hey, this is Megan Haney-Greer, freediver, ocean explorer, and marine educator. Also, the imperfect conservationist. You're listening to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast. So Christy, th these um, uh, marine estuarine environments um, how do they compare or how do protections in the U.S. compare to other parts of the world? And, you know, do you see particular benefits here or threats in other places that uh, are strong concerns? Um, I think they're kind of they're, they're kind of at risk around the globe uh, just because anything that's happening on the land will flow through that watershed and end up in the estuaries and, and beaches. And so anything we're doing is going to impact that. Um, the nice thing about the National Estuary Program in the United States is that for those 28 uh, locations that we have, we're paying particular attention to those bays of national significance. And we're trying to um, have concerted efforts related to habitat restoration, water quality, and then just raising the awareness of our of our residents and visitors on the importance of these so that people can learn more about it 
um, care more about it and hopefully do more to protect it. So I'd say overall, they're all at risk and we kind of have to make a concerted effort to try to um, tone down some of the um, some of the negative impacts that are happening to them. And in Tillamook, uh, are there opportunities uh, that are, are presented for you know non scientists to participate in the, in the protections? We have um, we have a great program. Um, Tillamook Estuaries Partnership is really small. Uh, we only have a few employees, and so we rely on more than a hundred volunteers every single year to help us out. And I'll, I can tell you about a couple of those programs. Probably our longest running one is our volunteer water quality monitoring program. And this has been going on for more than 20 years. And we have between 10 and 12 citizen scientists volunteers who we've trained who go out every two weeks and take water quality samples and bring them back to our, our very small lab and we run bacteria analysis on it. Our concern in our water quality more than um, various nutrients is bacteria because of our, um, our dairy farms and um, septic systems and just general wildlife that could contribute bacteria to the water quality. And some of our volunteers have actually been participating for that entire 20 year period. So wow. it's really pretty amazing. And we do the analysis on the, on the bacteria. We post those results within, within two days. Normally, it's, it, we'd love to do it sooner, but there is a, a, a sample preparation and, and testing time that requires at least 24 hours. And we post that on an online map so that uh, people who want to recreate then in the waterways can check and see what the water quality is so they know they're going into a, a healthy and safe environment before they do that. So that's so, one of, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was gonna say, so, so you would put a high value at um, that, you know, those in-situ data that, uh, uh, that's being collected by those citizen scientists. Yes, actually um, we have, we have a shared position with our Department of Environmental Quality, who is our water resource manager. And he was able to take that data and prove to the regulatory agency that this is valid, high quality data. And he used that to establish the status and trends in our, our local streams and, and waterways and to develop our our local total maximum daily loads for bacteria. So the regulations in our area are based on our citizen science data. Oh, that's so, fantastic. Uh, and it's it's just, it's a um, kind of a, a shining star example within our national estuary program of, of a long-term citizen science program. Our biggest opportunity for citizen scientists is at our native plant nursery. We have this wonderful program where we have a location where we are growing over 30 different species of trees, shrubs, and flowering plants and grasses that will be used for rest habitat restoration projects by more than 40 partners up and down the northern coast of Oregon, so across eight different counties. And um, this program was put together because our closest major source of plant material would be from the Portland and Willamette Valley area, which is on the other side of the mountain range. So those specific plants aren't um, genetically adapted to live and thrive on the coast where we have to think about different temperature ranges and salt in our salt in our, our in our air, you know, so 
what we would find is that when we would use those plants, the survivability would be less. Now, when we're growing and using our coastally adapted um, plants, we have upwards of 90% survival. So it's not only uh, uh, better because the plants are taking off and, and not being overgrown or outcompeted with by um, exotics or invasive species, but then we don't have to go back and replant. So it's a really good thing for our restoration projects. And we rely on um, hundreds of, of volunteers throughout the year uh, to help us at our nursery. This would be with, um, this would be with transplanting, taking uh, sowing seeds actually in the little tubes, watching them grow, helping us do health surveys, um, weeding and, and just caring for the health of the plants when they get a little bit larger, transplanting them to larger pots, and just continuing to allow these plants to, to grow and thrive. We keep them for anywhere between one to three years, depending on the species, and so we'll have over 100,000 plants at our nursery. And in addition to that, then we have to go out and get seeds, native seeds from our, lo our locations to grow the next round of crops. And so we actually have a program with eight different partners called Explore Nature. And this is a series of guided wa walks, hikes, paddles, and stewardship activities that we try to help connect people with the restoration work we do and the recreation that they enjoy. And so we have programs that we call seed detectives. And so we will get volunteers to come with us and we will train them on the identification of the species. And there are actually very specific protocols for seed collection. Uh, you don't wanna collect uh, more than a certain amount from any one plant because you wanna still leave the seed there to, to do its own thing in its own place. Uh, we have to get a, from a certain number of different plants so that we get the largest genetic mix. And so we teach them these protocols, we teach them identifications, and then we have a wonderful day of it outside uh, collecting seed. We take it back and we'll have folks help us uh, with the preparation and, and just getting it ready for um, sowing it at, at a later date. So all the way from seed collection to propagation and, and um, just general taking care of the plants. We rely on quite a few um, uh, volunteers every year. Another nice aspect of that is just the, not only are you doing the science and helping us with the restoration, but there's a, a large uh, a sociological benefit for it too. Uh, we, our plant nursery is right next door to the Oregon Youth Authority. And so we have incarcerated youth next door and we use them as our, our work crew to help us. So the, the volunteers get, or, get to interact with the youth. They're in their final year of incarceration and about to be released. So they're getting to learn some career, correct, career connected learning opportunities. They're getting to interact with um, the people they'll be, they'll be living next to uh, within a year. And it's really a great way of, of mixing both the science and the sociology and just the general um, neighborliness of, of helping each other make the habitats um, improve and, and helping the plants grow and helping the fish and everything else. That's really interesting. And uh, I'm assuming that some of the projects for seed collection and things are, are occurring at the other um, of the 28 areas that you mentioned before. Uh, we are the only ones with a native plant nursery. Oh, wow. So that does make it very well, important. 
Yeah, they may grow for their own restoration projects, uh, but they're not doing it on the scale that we're doing it. And so, yeah, that makes us really unique. Um, a lot of it, them have more big city problems, whereas we're <laughs> in a rural area, so we're able to do this sort of thing. It does sound, though, like the uh, the citizen science uh, projects that you're running are, are a win 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 situation in that you know you get a lot of value from the uh, data and from the seeds and such that uh, the volunteers are collecting and they get to learn a lot about what you do in terms of the science uh, with with their contributions so that's that's really that's really a neat thing and uh, something that's wor very worthwhile uh, you bring up a consider. good point there because i was going to ask you Carson. you know how do you see that this information um you know contributing to climate adaptation how how how, how can we associate those two together um well, certainly the uh, just this uh, simply the the data that is being collected, the uh, efforts that that a lot of these citizen scientists are putting in that has immense value to uh, ecological restoration. It has a immense value to scientific analysis um, to understand how conditions, for example, are changing. Uh, without those uh, without those citizen science inputs, uh, we would have a lot less to go on. Um, so from that standpoint, it's, it's absolutely critical. It also, by having, having participated in these, in these citizen science efforts, the participants become more aware of what's going on, uh, more educated about it, and they become advocates uh, for, for it. And a lot of times elected officials will listen to their constituents more than they may listen to a scientist or, or, a, or, a, or a, uh, an a ecosystem manager. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have seen with, even with my own experience that uh, if people are participating in one area of citizen science, they tend to want to participate in other areas as well, even, even areas that are not uh, in the same realm. Uh, with so many wonderful destinations around the world to choose from, a little help can go a long way. Quest Dive Adventures is your premium adventure travel company, offering a wide and diverse selection of destinations to choose from. With dive adventures from the Pacific to the Caribbean and adventure travel from Costa Rica to Africa, Quest Dive Adventures offers packages including flights and accommodations, activities, transfers, diving and more. Everything to enjoy your perfect vacation. What's your request? Christy, I wanted to ask you, you know, with regard to climate change, how do you see changes occurring in your area um, affecting that particular environment? Um, you know, as, there's a, as warming occurs, what, expect, what, what, what can we expect to see there? Uh, well, we're, we're seeing already the very beginning hints of, of problems with not only um, warmer water, but in quantities of water. Uh, because of the different temperatures throughout the seasons, sometimes we'll have too much water, flood seasons, and sometimes we'll have tremendous um, lack of water. So that is certainly changing. But then with respect to the, the water temperatures, um, the salmon thrive in, in cold water. And if it gets much higher than about 65 degrees, they're going to die off. Wow. Um, or they, can't, or they can't spawn, but they're not going to thrive. And so we need to be um, taking very serious look and um, at the water temperatures in our, in, in, all along from the 
oceans all the way up into the uplands in the in the forests. And one of the things that we do is we work with private landowners and we offer what we call our backyard planting program. So if they happen to have salmon bearing uh, creeks or streams on their property, we'll find grant money to go in, we'll remove their invasive species along their stream banks, and we will plant native species from our nursery and we'll maintain those for three years so that they get a chance to establish and not uh, be taken over by those uh, invasive species so that they will have native trees along their, their shorelines or their, their stream banks to provide shade for the water. It also prevents uh, erosion so that people don't lose their, their, um, their property. And it, as a result, then it impacts uh, the level of sedimentation that gets into the water. So that's one of the things that, that we do. Um, another thing that we're concerned about is just the, uh, the ocean acidification where mm -hmm. the, we're worried about the waters getting a little bit more acidic. And we're starting to see that that can impact our oyster and shellfish industry. It makes, the, it, makes it more difficult for the shells to form and it makes it more difficult for the larvae of those shellfish to settle. Mm -hmm. And so we have a number of shellfish hatcheries around our area and they're constantly doing research to try to find out how can they mitigate the change in um, acidification of the oceans. And one of the things that they're finding is that uh, if they plant kelp around the perimeters of their um, shellfish farms, that that kelp is such a good um, oxygenator that it can lower, at least in that particular area, or I'm sorry, it, it, can, um, it can stabilize the pH in those particular areas so that the shellfish aren't impacted by the uh, changing in acidity. And just to be clear for the listeners who, who are unfamiliar with ocean acidification, um, that, that is a process that's caused directly because of an uptake of carbon dioxide by the ocean. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Well, Christy, I, I do want to thank you for coming in today. We do appreciate uh, your time and uh, we want to wish you and the Tillamook uh, Estuary um, Partnership all the best uh, in your work and thank you for what you're doing. And uh, we hope that we'll have you back on the show again in the future. Great, I'd love to. Thanks so much. Okay, Carson, so let's switch to the news. Uh, for those that you are just joining the podcast for the first time, um, the we do have a, a newsletter that goes out called the Two Degree C Climate Check, and that's available off our website at twodegreec.org. Um, we just send it out once a week, um, trying to give you three headlines out of the news and um, a nice report uh, coming out of, uh, out of science uh, to try and help us understand just the facts, uh, nothing else, once a week. So uh, 2degreesc.org, and it's called the 2degrees C Climate Check Newsletter. So Carson, today I wanted to talk, there were three really interesting news uh, headlines that I saw that popped up. The first one is carbon emissions could plummet, the atmosphere will lag behind. What's going on there? Why, why is that happening? So we've put a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of greenhouse gases and such up into the atmosphere for the last 150 or so years um, or more. And uh, some of these, some of these uh, gases, they can stay up in the atmosphere for decades, um, even centuries. So 
going to a you know zero emission scenario or a net zero, which is where you're you're sequestering as much as you're emitting, um, those are only going to address part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that those uh, gases we've already emitted are still up there, uh, changing the climate. Um, so we have to spend a, a, some effort on actually capturing some of that carbon and uh, removing it from the atmosphere if we want to accelerate uh, returning the, the climate to a, a sort of a pre-industrial state is, is the ultimate hope that we, I don't know that we'd ever get there, but at least a manageable state where climate uh, is not changing as dramatically as, as it's being projected to do. So just to be clear, so a, a net zero uh, being announced by any particular organization or by a country is not enough. We need to be doing more. Correct. Correct. Um, you know, they can they can go to a, a net zero where they're still emitting uh, greenhouse gases, um, but their carbon footprint is offset by uh, sequestration, planting forests, uh, carbon capture technologies, other things that uh, that remove uh, the carbon from the atmosphere. Um, in the same quantities. Um, but right. again, that's just stopping the input. It's not necessarily addressing the input that's already been uh, put up there. Right. Well, that kind of leads me to the next headline, which is uh, climate change, a threat multiplier driving migration from Central America. Let's talk about that. Sure. What's happening? Uh, well, you know, the migration, migration has always been there as people seek economic uh, advantages, uh, economic opportunities elsewhere. But climate, as the climate is changing, it's, it's really making uh, matters a lot more dire for a lot of uh, folks who are living in, in poverty and, and or close to poverty in, in other places, uh, such as Central America. Uh, and when you throw a changing climate, which is making uh, floods uh, more uh, prevalent, hurricanes a bit stronger, changing their tracks, uh, you know, devastating people's livelihoods down in those regions, they are often left with no alternative but to say we need to find a better place. Um, and that can, can multiply that decision of, uh, of, of, of uprooting your family and moving. So we can expect to see this from any equatorial region around the world, not just specifically uh, Central America, as this uh, was referencing. We can expect this in Africa and, and uh, you know, um, all over the, the, the East. Uh, we can, yeah, we can expect this from just about anywhere where the climate is changing at a, at a significant rate. Um, and causing problems that may destabilize governments, it may destabilize food sources, it may destabilize uh, income uh, generation. So any of those, you know, it's multiplying those effects um, and, uh, and may drive migration from, from any location, not necessarily just the equatorial regions. Gotcha. The last one I wanted to talk about, uh, this one was, this one surprised me, uh, was not expecting to see this headline. But uh, it's with regard to climate change in making the universe blurrier. <laughs> Why is that? So this is this is actually a pretty interesting uh, uh, thing in that these uh, these large uh, telescopes that uh, observatories use around the world they still have to look through the atmosphere, and as humidities uh, increase in in a lot of these places, that's those 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 uh, water vapor gases, they scatter light. 
and they they bend light around them and this can cause a difficulty for these telescopes to remain in focus um, at the same time warmer temperatures are going to require a lot more cooling of the mirrors within these telescopes to uh, to keep them at the optimal shape uh, so that there those uh, the emissions costs of, of cooling and air conditioning these uh, these large telescope arrays may go up dramatically as well but from the blurring standpoint the uh, large factor is going to be the amount of water vapor that the telescope has to look through in the atmosphere well thanks for clearing that up uh, that certainly helps us uh, figure <laughs> figure those headlines out and hopefully uh, we'll, we'll have some new ones to throw at you next week uh, thanks very much for today guys um, We'll look forward to uh, the next Two Degrees Deep uh, podcast coming up real soon. Thanks, Neil. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. If you have a question you would like answered, a topic for discussion, or would like to be a guest on the show, please leave a comment below. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys. And if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors and partners without which this podcast is not possible with special thanks to Seren Media for producing today's episode. To find out more about our partners, please visit our website. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or partner, please email us at podcast at 2 degreesc.org.